you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, verse number 16. And let's begin today by reading the next text that we're going to study. Verses 16 through 23. Colossians 2, verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Now we live in a culture today where the intimidation of others plays a massive role in the narrative of day-to-day living here in America. By now, we've all heard and understand the term Cancel culture, right? I mean, we've watched major players in the public square get banned on Twitter, now called X for whatever reason, but banned simply for stating that a man cannot be a woman. And for Christians, even though we have held to the same basic set of values and biblical morals for over 2,000 years, we are being intimidated by those who oppose us and our beliefs that we've held for over 2,000 years on a massive 
and very effective scale. And we have watched sadly and very pathetically Christian pastors and church leaders capitulate and give into this kind of intimidation on a scale that literally makes me sick to my stomach every time I watch it online. Preachers who engage in any of that, the elements of what we call wokeness are beta males in my book. And as I said before, what I want to say to these weak, effeminate, so-called pastors who are who are intimidated into silence on controversial issues, what I want to say to them is go do something else. Stop bringing shame to our high calling and vocation and just admit the fact that you are not fit to serve our King. As small as a voice as we have here at Providence and as long as we exist and we function as the church of Jesus Christ on this corner, we are never going to cower and be afraid of stating the centuries-old positions of the Christian faith in the areas of morality or whatever the hot-button issues of the day are. For example, let's be clear. Homosexuality is a sin. It's an abomination to God. Now, we love people. We speak the truth in love. We want to be wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove, right? That's what Jesus called us. If a person engages in that lifestyle lovingly, with grace, we want to say to them, but clearly, you need to repent. This is a sin, just like a whole other list of sins that I can name before I came to Christ. And that I still engage in Romans 7, as we learned in Sunday school, that I battle with my flesh now that I'm a Christian. But we have to be clear. Transgenderism is evil. We have to be clear. Transgenderism is giving God the middle finger to his God-ordained role. He's saying, no, God, no. You, you may have ordained me to be this way, but I'm saying to you, no. I'm going to choose to be another gender, which is impossible. A man cannot become a woman. And a woman cannot become a man, period. God's wrath and His judgment and hell are real. And if you do not repent of your sins and exercise saving faith in Jesus Christ alone, to hell you will go forever when you die. Those things are Bible Truth 101. And they never have changed. And they never will change. 
And there's no sense in beating around the bush about it. We have to be clear in this age what Christianity is all about. And it makes people in this age uncomfortable. The gospel offends people. It always has. It always will. And now, though, we have churches who are, who are trying to include, include this, this third way, if you will, of allowing these clear abominations to God to gain a foothold in the life of the church from outright blatant and outrageous support of the things we see happening in our culture today to squishy, pitiful explanation and methods of being loving towards people and movements that are behaving in massive rebellion toward God. And we can label it all under the heading of false doctrine when it comes from the church. And there's nothing new under the sun. The Colossians, as we've seen so far in our study of this epistle, were also being intimidated by false teachers who were promoting false doctrine in their church. They were being made to feel like spiritually they were being left out. Like they were inadequate. Like Having Jesus Christ alone was not enough. Like they hadn't really arrived yet spiritually. Like there were a lot more things to get in Christianity that they hadn't even begun to see yet. And we see this today in what I will call the professing church in America. We live in a day of overexposure, right? I mean, the internet age has changed things in the way that we function and live that we don't even stop to think about or realize, really. In Paul's day, the volume and the intensity of false doctrine may have been a lot less, but the impact of it was still there. The most dangerous movements in our world today are not coming from the left as wicked and nation destroying as they are, but rather from professing Christians and pastors and churches who are constantly flooding our land with false doctrine. So this letter to the Colossians will always be a very important one for us to study because what this letter is, is an open rebuttal to false teachers. It restates the basic truth of Christianity from the very start of the epistle and then really it tackles all the heresies that deny the truth. Because why? Because it presents to us so clearly that the fundamental basic truth of Christianity is Christ. Christ. Christ alone is sufficient. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. Christ alone is Savior. Jesus 
Christ is all you need. That's the message of Colossians. These poor Colossians had been taught that, but they were now being told that they were a long way from where they needed to be. A long way from what God really wanted them to know and to understand. So Paul writes this letter to tell them, Christ is all you need. Remember from back in verse 10, what did he say? And in him you have been made what? Complete. And we went through all what that means. And if you remember, we started talking about four areas of heresy that this church in Colossae was having to deal with. Philosophy, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. And we already covered in verses 8 to 15, Paul dealing with the subject of human philosophy. They said, you need Christ. Yes, you need him. But you also need human wisdom and philosophy to go along with him. And Paul says, no, you need Christ plus nothing. And there are those today who try to intimidate us and label us as ignorant people because we don't understand all the realm of human philosophy. We lack education. We're the hillbilly types that just hold on to the Bible. You know what? I'm fine with taking that label because I know how it all ends for the Bible-believing hillbilly types. Now, let's look at the next issue. They said you have to commit yourself to the religion of human achievement. It's Christ plus works righteousness. Look at verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. So Paul is saying to these Colossians, look, these people, are trying to intimidate you with legalism. They're trying to judge you on what you eat and what you drink and whether or not you attend the Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Lights, whether you make your sacrifice on the first day of the month, which is the new moon, whether you follow all the the rules and the rituals of the Sabbath day. Basically, what they were saying is it isn't enough to have faith in Christ alone. You have to have faith in Christ and you have to keep the Jewish law. And then to make this even more confusing, there was all this Greek and pagan stuff mixed in with all of that. But it was all... Christ plus equals true salvation and spirituality, no matter what banner it was under. A good simple definition of legalism is this, subscribing your spirituality to man-made rules. Now understand, obeying God's rules is obedience, not legalism. But subscribing and defining your spirituality by your submission 
to man-made rules, that is legalism. Notice verse 16. Starts out with a therefore, and when we see a therefore in the Bible, we got to know what it's there for, remember? Well, it's coming off of verses 10 to 15 where Paul had just said, in Christ you have been made complete. So he's saying, as we learned last time, if Christ has given you, believer, complete forgiveness and complete victory, and if everything is complete in him, then don't let anybody come along and make a spiritual judgment on you that is dependent on what you do or what you don't do ritualistically. And then remember that this was a Gentile city. So a lot of them were getting all of this dumped on them, this Jewish stuff, and they didn't have any idea what what they were talking about. But Paul knew how dangerous all of this was. He didn't want this group losing their freedom in Christ over to the bondage of a bunch of man-made rules. Christ plus any kind of works when it comes to salvation injects partly at least you saving yourself. And that is not what the gospel so clearly teaches us. And this has been a problem in the church all throughout history, right down to today. People in one form or another wanting to judge everybody's spirituality based on what they do or don't do externally. For example, you've had Baptists for years who have said, if you dance, you are bound for Hades directly. Right? One time, we got interested in the old trailblazer who came out of Algiers, New Orleans on the radio. Boy, he was a fiery preacher. Albert Penn Darvis. He now has moved his church over to Walker. And uh, This is in our early years of ministry, me and Rusty Reed. And we didn't know a whole lot of what was going on. We were just trying to figure things out. This guy was fiery. He's preaching the gospel, man. I said, we got to go meet this guy. So we would go down, we meet him, and there's a whole story. Of course, there's always a story with us, and I could go into it long, but the, the point I want to get to, they had a Christmas party over at, at his house, and he had like a like a shop in the back where they did the Christmas party. It's about as big as this room. And they come to find out, had this weird mixture of doctrine of legalism and women had to wear dresses. and It was just a whole hodgepodge of all kind of different doctrine. And, uh, Christy wisely wore a skirt to the event. I don't even know if she was thinking about that. But Casey Reed showed up in a pair of pants. To which she was told, you need to get saved and get out them pants. When I was a kid, I used to go to my cousins in the summertime sometimes. Over in Bell, Louisiana. And they had some Pentecostal friends that lived down the road. And the girls 
could never ever wear makeup. They could never ever cut their hair. And there was never a television allowed in their house. Now, as a North Baton Rouge Catholic boy, that didn't make any sense to me. I was like, what's going on with these people? Now, the problem with that kind of evaluation is that somebody who is not genuinely a Christian can qualify on every one of those counts. Not wear no makeup, not never cut their hair, not never have a TV in their house. Now listen real carefully to me. It isn't that true Christians won't manifest some behavioral patterns that are very contrary to the world's moral behaviors. And we should. You should act right because you love God and you desire to bring Him glory with your life. You should act right. You should be in obedience to Scripture because you're so thankful for the fact that God saved you. Your your, your salvation is the fruit of the fact that your, your, your works are the fruit of the fact that you have been saved. Keep that in your mind. Keep that straight. But it is that phony people can always conform to the outward externals of quote-unquote Christian morality. You know who's a perfect example of this? The Mormons. Some of the nicest, not smoking, not cussing, not drinking, moral people you ever want to meet in your life are devout Mormons. They don't even drink caffeine. The devout ones. But evaluating based merely on those types of externals alone is never ever a good way to determine spirituality. Yes, we judge people by their fruits, but the fruits have to be rooted in sound doctrine. And this is what Paul is getting at here in our text. Don't let anybody judge your spirituality based on your eating or drinking, like whether you do or don't eat meat offered to idols. We find that in other parts of Scripture. It's the same, it's the same issue. When you do this kind of thing, you make Christianity into a game that you can play on the outside. And that's a problem. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 to 3 gets at this when it says, listen carefully to this. You can follow with me on the screen or in your Bible. By means of hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who know and believe the truth. Anybody know of a religious system that evaluates spirituality by forbidding people to marry and abstain from foods on special days? Anybody? Bueller? Anybody? 
You know what one verse earlier calls all that at the end of 1 Timothy 4.1? Look at it. What's that right at the end? Doctrines of demons, Paul said. Paul's saying, don't let these people rob you of your liberty in Christ. That's what he's worried about here. Now, let me take a little side note. There are some people, as Paul refers to in other areas, as weaker brothers who will cause us to restrict our liberties in certain areas when we're with them. But that's different. For example, if you have a believer whose conscience doesn't let them do certain things, then in their presence you don't do them either because you don't want to wound their conscience. But we never restrict our liberty for false teachers. That's two very different subjects. We're dealing with false teachers. We enjoy our liberty and we never let them restrict it with their works system of righteousness. Because you know what they're trying to say? They're trying to say with their works that Christ alone is not enough to save you. Christ is not enough alone to make you spiritual. Now, in particular, again, in verse 16, the food and drink is referring here to Old Testament prohibitions under the Old Covenant. And those were set in place for a number of God's purposes for his people, Israel, in the Old Testament, for their good physically, nutritionally, or also just to make them set apart and a peculiar people from the, from the pagan nations around them. But the New Covenant comes along and all those laws were set aside and multiple areas in the New Testament make that very clear. I've told you many times, but it bears repeating again and again. Every false system of religion in this world says you get saved by some kind of works. Every single one of them. But biblical Christianity is the only system of religion in the entire world that is purely a system of grace alone. Now that's really something to think about, isn't it? I find it to be huge evidence that we are on the right track with what we believe out of this Bible. Verse 16 goes on. Don't let them judge you in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Again, all Jewish requirements from the old covenant. You know what some folks think? Well, if I go to church on Christmas and Easter and I don't smoke and drink and I'm nice to people, I'll surely go to heaven when I die. Will you just go and try that out? See what happens. When you, after your last breath is taken. And as for these Gentile Colossian Christians, why impose Jewish legalism on them in addition to, to faith in Christ? Well, I can tell you very simply, just like in so many cases today, our adversary wanted to convince them that Christ was not sufficient alone, and he's always willing to do that by any means necessary. He doesn't care what means he has to do it by. He's always going to enter in faith plus works in some way, shape, form, or fashion. 
That's always been the issue, folks, in every age. Now, next in verse 17, Paul gets to the point of all those Jewish works in verse 16. Look next. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Those things you just read about, those those are a mere shadow, meaning a shadow just anticipates the arrival of somebody. And Paul is saying the somebody is here. So now you don't need the shadow from the Old Testament. Get out of the shadow. The reality is here. The substance belongs to Christ, is what he's saying. Why would you concern yourself with old covenant eating guidelines when the one who was foreshadowed by Israel's manna, for example, in the Old Testament, is offering himself as the true bread of life? How can observance of Passover be considered as a means to spiritual perfection when our Passover, Christ, has been sacrificed once for all in order to perfect all the saints? What justification could there be for demanding Gentile converts to observe the law of the Jewish Sabbath when the bringer of eternal Sabbath rest has already granted that to us. Those things are the point of verse 17. Along with again, pointing out the heresy that Christ alone was not enough. These people were denying the all-sufficiency of Christ alone. They were denying the preeminence of Christ. And there is no worse lie than that. Now for our application, am I saying you ought not worry about the externals? Don't worry about coming to church, live however you want to. No, I am not saying that. Be balanced. Hear what I'm saying. I'm simply saying Just don't judge spirituality on external basis alone. Externals should be there. Yes, they should, but be careful because true judgment is going to come when as 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 5 says this, therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring both Light to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts and then each man's praise will come to him from God. So, having discussed philosophy and legalism, Paul moves next to mysticism. And let me give you a definition of mysticism. Mysticism is a deeper or higher experience based on some kind of personal intuition. It's totally subjective. It's kind of like saying, well, I've I've had this experience with God. I mean, I I really can't define it, but, but, but I've touched God. The heretics were, were claiming this. We have a higher, deeper, greater mystical union with God than you do. 
We have obtained a, a humility and a piety that is unlike anything that you people have experienced. We have connected with those, those aeons and those emanations and those sub-gods. Remember we talked about that earlier in our study of this epistle. And, and we've climbed the ladder up to the true deity. We, we have all that same stuff happening today in the New Age movement. It's all still happening today. Now listen to what Paul says next in verses 18 and 19. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, verse 19, and not holding fast to the head. Now stop there. He's saying, don't let anybody tell you you are disqualified from attaining the prize of spirituality because you haven't reached the level of self-abasement. We'll get to that in a minute. You haven't understood the worship of angels or you haven't had the right visions. Those folks who believe all that are just inflated by their own fleshly minds, he's saying. And the one thing they are not doing is holding fast to the head as he says it there in verse 19. And who is the head? Christ. From whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. Again, they said, it, it, it's Christ plus the visions. It, it, it's Christ plus my experience with angels. It, it's Christ plus my higher, deeper connections than what you have. And like I've told you before, this is the heart of the heresy that has plagued the church for centuries. It became known later as Gnosticism. And it's still here with us today. Having that secret deeper, higher knowledge and experience with God. And often it involved Jesus, just as it does today, just not the Jesus of Scripture alone. Paul says here in verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize, meaning of your salvation, of your spirituality, of your completeness in Christ. Don't let nobody defraud you of that. All of this, as I said, was intimidating to these people in this Colossian church. And this has continued in all kind of forms down through church history. This idea of a spiritually elite class. Now you already know why I wear a coat and tie when I get up here to preach. It's respect for the office of a pastor. It's not just because I want to look good. It's respect for what I'm doing. I'm doing the most important job in the universe. I'm preaching God's word to God's people on God's day. That's why I wear a coat and tie. Reverence. Respect. But just think about the 
elaborate robes and stupid looking big old cone hats that some of the religious leaders wear, even backward collars. I mean, all, all that stuff can be intimidating to people. Like putting them up on some kind of higher level. It all carries the idea of piety and being spiritually elite and we're up here and you're down here and what it all really boiled down to here, Paul says, is, is they don't believe Jesus is enough. Verse 18 says the worship of angels. Worship of angels. The Bible says there's one mediator between God and man. The God-man, Christ Jesus. Remember in Revelation when John tried to worship an angel? Twice that angel said, get up! Don't worship me! I'm just a creature like you! He also mentions visions in this text. Let me tell you something. I've been a Christian since 1997. I've been serving the king in the ministry for over 22 years. I've never had one vision. I've never heard one audible syllable from God in my head. And you know what? I'm just fine with that. Because I have Christ. And I have his infallible, inerrant, authoritative, all-sufficient word, and that's all I need. I'm actually overwhelmed by the Bible alone. The older I get, the more I think I know, the more I realize I don't know about the Bible. All we need to hold to is the one who holds the whole church together, and that is King Jesus. You are complete in Him alone. This is still one of the biggest lies that keeps going in the church today. Christ alone is not enough. His word alone is not enough. The charismatic movement has perpetrated this heresy for the last hundred years with its second blessing doctrine evidenced by speaking in unbiblical, phony, stupid, gibberish tongues. All of that is phony. Biblical tongues are biblical languages. You want to learn about that? Come to the Here We Stand conference in October. Rusty Reed will be speaking on that topic. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. This is not rocket science, people. We have everything we need with Christ and His Word alone. Now the last thing that Paul addresses here in our text that they tried to intimidate these Colossians with was asceticism. Now that's a fancy $5 word. But it's not hard to understand. It's no words are hard to understand. Once you get the definition of them, then you got them down. The dictionary defines an ascetic as somebody who lives a life of rigorous self-denial. An example would be somebody who sells everything they have and they go and they live up on a hill in a monastery somewhere. I mean, when you stop and think about it, these religious phonies in Colossae really had it all. A whole Piccadilly buffet of all kind of religious deception. 
And these guys were saying that the only true spirituality comes in self-denial. And the church has been intimidated by that for centuries. The only truly uber-spiritual people are the people who become monks and nuns and, and subject themselves to poverty and celibacy. Look at, look at verses 20 to 21. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, in other words, from the basics of human religion, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as, verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Now let me give you a little bit of background. A lot of these ascetics were some weird folks. The pagans really went to the extremes. They, they believed that the body was evil. And there were monks that regarded it as a sin to take a bath because they would see their own body. So they wouldn't bathe. How'd you like to hang out with one of those guys after a couple of years? There are writings that state that marriage from these ascetics was seen as an experiment of the serpent that separates from the Lord because you'd see somebody else's body. So don't get married. Athanasius boasted of the devotion of Anthony who never changed his vest or washed his feet. And that was considered praiseworthy. There was a man named Antonius he wrote about a character named Simeon Stylites. Simeon Stylites was so holy that it was said that vermin dropped off his body when he walked through the town. True story. Some early church fathers actually castrated themselves as an act of self-denial seeking to attain Holiness. I would have never fallen for that one. I'm not saying that we should not ever engage in forms of self-denial. I mean, we should do that in small ways as a practical matter. Or be like the great missionary Hudson Taylor who, who voluntarily subjected himself to great suffering but only to be God's man in the place he was called to minister. Now that's way different. He didn't do it to uh, attain greater levels of spirituality. He did it in response to God's call on his life to go preach the gospel to an unreached people group. In verse 21, the do not handle, touch, or taste, it's like, that, that's not spiritual. No more all, no more wine, no more meat, no, no contact with a religious inferior. That was one that they followed. You can't even touch somebody that's religiously inferior to you. And then in verse 22, which all refer to the things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. It's all human stuff is what he's saying. Why are you attributing 
inherent value to that which is human and passing away. God doesn't expect all of us to live in poverty. If, if, if God calls you to that, and, and that is his plan, then that's for you. You're good and for his glory. But if God chooses to bless you like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, amen, them guys had money. They were wealthy. If God chooses to allow you to be wealthy, guess what? Newsflash, that's not sinful. The issue is what do you do with the money He gives you? It's not whether you have it or not. It's how you handle what you have. Because it's all His anyway. So spirituality is not Christ plus self-denial, Christ plus living in a monastery and never taking a bath. It's not Christ plus anything. And then verse 23, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against self-indulgence. He's telling these Colossians, all these things have the appearance, the reputation in the town for wisdom. For sure they intimidate. I mean, look at this guy. He keeps all the rules. He has the higher visions. He communes with the angels. He purposely lives in poverty. He looks to be so good with his self-made humility. He even has severe treatment of his own body. Oh, he's so spiritual. But look at the end of the verse about all that but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. It's of no value whatsoever. Really, it only serves to satisfy the flesh. It's really just plain old carnality. You're trying to glorify yourself as the one who actually saves yourself through doing all these stupid things. It's all about self. Their humility was fake because it was really nothing but the masking of spiritual pride cloaked in a supposed spirituality. It's an effort to make themselves appear more holy than other people. And it still goes on today. You ever seen them people in India? They put those big old hooks in their back and then they pull those heavy weights down the street in their, in their Hinduism. Listen to what the commentator McLaren said about them. Quote, any asceticism is a great deal more to men's taste than abandoning self. They will rather stick hooks in their backs and do the swinging puja, whatever that is, then give up their sins or yield up their sins. Now listen to this. There is only one thing that will put the collar on the neck of the animal within us and that is the power of the indwelling Christ. End quote. You can stick all the hooks in your back you want. 
You can be like some Catholic priests who still to this day will wear a belt under their shirt filled with nails and pins that stick into their body thinking that that is somehow going to attain them to some special level of holiness. Let me tell you something. All of those things are examples of poor, frustrated, delusioned individuals who really are only acting in a pandering to their own flesh and cloaking it in spirituality. So, to close this out, I will only repeat what I've been saying through this whole sermon. Christianity is Christ plus nothing else. You are complete in Christ alone and the guide to being in Christ alone is being in his word alone. See what happens when I get four tens and a Friday, be here all day at church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Hard words, hard truth, not easy to hear. Bible. Bible truth 101. Christ plus nothing. It's the way it always has been, always will be. Oh, Lord, help us to get this down in our bloodstream. That we not make these errors that Paul was trying to keep these dear Colossians from making. How we thank you for your gospel. How we thank you for Christ alone is the reality of our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.